you everyone for joining. I'm Uzair Yunus and this is, I think, our first Pakistanomy video discussion and uh, apt time to talk about Pakistan's economy and what's going on given the coronavirus issue. So I have Maheen Rahman with me, Ram Heather and Musharraf Zaidi. Thank you for all, all of you for joining on such last minute notice. So Maheen, starting off with you, the State Bank of Pakistan today announced 75 basis points cut in the interest rate. Um, I was watching Pakistani news uh, as crazy as it sounds, but some people are talking about the state bank for not providing a bigger monetary stimulus. Um, what are your thoughts on the decision and where do you see Pakistan's economy going with uh, the coronavirus uh, crisis? Okay, so thanks for that and thanks for having me on the call. Um, so I think before we sit and analyze uh, the state bank's decision on 75 basis point reduction in the interest rate, let's talk a little bit about where we were before the coronavirus hit and where you know we are likely to end up. So before this all started, and Pakistan's cases have, I think, jumped from 20, you know, 20 odd to almost 200 just in the span of a week. So uh, clearly this is uh, very quickly becoming an issue for us. So, I mean, I think if we look at the Pakistan economy pre sort of corona, we were in a situation of heading towards some degree of stability, uh, both in terms of the Pak rupee as well as in terms of inflation and in terms of interest rates. Uh, you know, manufacturing output was slowly uh, hitting the bottom of the U, uh, and overall demand had slowed, but uh, you know, not um, so significantly as to cause uh, you know a recession uh, as such. Yes, we were in a in a slowdown, but we had been in that slowdown. Uh, for almost two years since 2017. So we had sort of somewhat of a fragile economic recovery. And I say the word fragile is because um, it, it is very much uh, the case uh, because any, any sort of, you know, our economy is one where uh, any kind of major exogenous shock uh, can throw us off uh, balance very quickly. Um, and then you had the Corona issue and, um, you know, even if we look at the number of cases in Pakistan today, uh, you know, at 200 odd, given the size of the population, it's not huge. Uh, but the capacity for this thing to spread, as we've seen in China, as we've seen in Italy, and as if, as we've seen as in Iran, is, you know, is very high and it's exponential. So the fear is um, certainly there. Now, um, in, in terms of what this means, I mean, so far. Uh, what you have seen since we, even before the MPS announcements, what you've seen is, you know, a severe destruction uh, of value on the uh, Pakistan Stock Exchange. Uh, it's down 20% uh, from the peak. Uh, and a lot of this has happened in the last 10 days or so. Uh, of course, it's mirroring other global markets. Uh, but, you know, the fear is quite real. Now, what this fear does is it just pulls back uh, on any kind of economic decision making that private uh, the private sector will be doing. So when it comes to households, they will most likely spend less and hoard more. When it comes to businesses, they will uh, push forward investment decisions and push forward business decisions because now they're in disaster management mode. Uh, and it, when, when it comes to overall demand, I think even before uh, anything, uh, just the fear itself will drive demand uh, much, much lower than what we had seen. So that fragile recovery that we had kind of been seeing was uh, being put at risk now by the um, uh, the corona scare. And then you had uh, the State Bank, which announced a 75 basis point reduction today. Now, the State Bank is looking at a number of things, uh, and it happens very often in economic uh, crises that everyone becomes an eco economist and everyone thinks they have the answers. Um, well, right now we have economists and public health experts, two and two for one combo going around Pakistan. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, exactly. Um, and so in these situations, it's very easy to turn around and say that the state bank should have dropped by 200 basis points or 300 basis points. Uh, but there is a cost to those decisions. Um, and when we look at the fact that our recovery was very fragile, our exchange rate stability had been very hard won. I mean, you have to understand, we've seen a 50% move in the rupees, exceptionally painful to the Pakistan economy in the span of two years. And we had only just in the last six months achieved some degree of recovery. And that very much by actual state bank actions on the interest rate, on the uh, measures taken 
to stabilize uh, the current account, particularly in form of imports. So if we had dropped, uh, say, you know, if we had come back with a rate cut of, say, 200 or 300 basis points, yes, you would have made the stock markets very happy. You would have made the stockbrokers very happy. Uh, probably the fund managers as well very happy. But what you would have done would have immediately uh, weakened the rupees position quite significantly. Uh, and that would have led to second, third round impacts on inflation. So there's always a cost to these um, to these things. Uh, by dropping by 75 basis points, I think the bank has probably tried to do a somewhat measured approach uh, by at least giving a signal um, that the interest rate now is uh, now on the easing side. So even though this rate cut is not as high as what most people would have wanted or expected, it is a move in the direction um, that is necessary. Uh, and it's certainly what it, what it will do is it will stabilize the currency. Uh, it will not add to instability on the on the economic recovery. It will give some room uh, for uh, businesses to breathe when it comes comes to leverage but you have to understand pakistan's not a very highly leveraged economy in the in mm-hmm. the first place so at, at best this really just serves as a signal that there is more easing along the line uh, i think what is more interesting and probably a much nicer touch to throw in was the seven percent uh cheap financing which yeah. the state bank is uh, is offering any new business uh, or any new industrial uh, venture setup as well as a three percent financing on um on, uh, you know, I think hospital equipment, et cetera, to come in to assist yeah. hospitals to expand their capacity to do deal with the coronavirus. So, I mean, one thing that you have to understand is uh, the Federal Reserve's dropped its interest rates to zero. The ECB is already at zero. Neither of those two impacts have had any influence whatsoever on the economic decision, on the on the economics of the country itself. Uh, because this is this is while this is an economic issue, it is at the moment very much a health issue, uh, and very much a control issue in terms of how you can stop the virus from spreading. Uh, and no amount of interest rate reduction in the immediate term by any economy will have um, you know any impact whatsoever on the virus spreading. So let's separate the two things. Yes, it's good to have uh, easing. Uh, it is necessary. Um, but there's no reason for it to all happen in one go. It can happen over the next two months, three months, four months, or five months. And I think we will see the state bank reduce interest rates by an additional three and a half to four percent until the end of this year, which would bring uh, interest rates well into single digit territory. Uh, but to do it all uh, right now, perhaps uh, would have taken, uh, quite a bit of the recovery that we have seen so ba- so far on the macro front. Thank you for that detailed uh, analysis. Uh, a follow-up question from my side was, you know, you mentioned uh, cutting interest rates too sharply and their impact on the currency and its depreciation. One of the things that people have criticized, at least in the last year or so, uh, from the state bank's perspective, is that the higher interest rates and the flow of treasury bills from uh, foreign uh, portfolio inflows essentially into Pakistan's debt markets are starting to reverse now. Um, and that we're seeing across all over the world in terms of an outflow from emerging and frontier markets into the U.S. dollar or the Japanese yen. And uh, even in the U.S. today, money market funds are having issues because of a dry up of liquidity. Um, how much do you think that factored in in the state bank's decision in terms of how to how far to cut interest rates? And do you see the reversal of the carry trade as a major risk for Pakistan's external sector, which still is in a precarious situation? Yeah, that's true. Um, I think that would have factored in somewhat into their uh, assessment for sure. Uh, the carry trade at the peak was about $3.2, $3.3 billion. It's not the first time, though, that Pakistan has seen carry trade come in. It's not the first time that Pakistan will see it unwind. I think it's just the first time that we see these things highlighted. Because like I said, everybody looks at the numbers a lot more closely now. Um, but it's not the first time that we've had interest rates at 13.7%. Our highest interest rate peak was actually in January 2009, where interest rates climbed to 15.5%. Um, so uh, the carry trade unwind is certainly something that will be a cause of concern. 
uh, for the state bank. That's probably why they would like to go with a more measured approach on the interest rate cut. And this comes back to the point on fragile economic stability that I was mentioning earlier, um, that there has been uh, a lot of work done to get the economy to a position where we are not in free fall. Uh, and I think a very sharp cut may have pushed us back. You also have to understand that the reason interest rates are high and the reason the currency is weak is because we have fundamental issues within the economy and those relate to mm -hmm. taxation and those relate to exports. They really have very little to do with hot money flowing either here or there. Um, the reason you're attracting hot money uh, is because your interest rates are high. When your interest rates goes, go low, your carry trade will unwind. But we can't seem to sustain these because our exports are very vulnerable. Uh, and really haven't moved beyond that $20 billion mark in the last five years or so. At the same time, our tax collection uh, is at best weak. Uh, you're in a country where people generally don't like to pay income tax. And because of that, the, com the government has no uh, you know, fiscal space from which to operate. Um, you are effectively, and I think this is the only country in the world where I've seen this, you're looking at, at a um, country where households do not have any leverage and are fairly cash rich. Mm -hmm. Uh, as is judged by consumer spending. Uh, you have businesses, whether they're small, medium enterprise or whether they're large corporations, are fairly cash rich and generally under leveraged. So not in any danger of bankruptcy. You have provincial governments uh, which are sitting on um, you know, large amounts of sales tax collection and other collection, which has all been moved to the provincial level. So it, the problem is not at the provincial government level be going into bankruptcy. And yet you have a federal government which is effectively bankrupt at all times. So, mm -hmm. you know, your, your, your issues are, uh, you know, not really related to the underlying economy. Your issues are related to the ability of the government to show export numbers and so taxation numbers at the federal level. So that, that is a bigger, a bigger problem. It has far less to do with hot money and much more to do with the structural problems that exist within the framework itself. No, that, that's, good to, that's good to know. Musharraf, from your perspective, switching over to what's going on in Islamabad, the prime minister addressed the nation earlier today. Um, the response so far, at least on the fiscal side, has been non-existent, uh, if, if one can call it that. Uh, what do you see uh, going on in Islamabad and where do you see things going in terms of the economic impact, particularly on the average Pakistani citizen uh, in this crisis? You know, I think, uh, Ozer, the... Uh, I think it's telling that the order of uh, business uh, has begun with kind of a, first of all, a recognition uh, that this is a human crisis. And the fact that that recognition uh, hadn't taken place two weeks ago, uh, I think it says some things about the, the overall values that are uh, demonstrable in this public discourse. And then when, when we do see, you know, I mean, if you see the incentives today, quite rightly, small and medium businesses are have already been hurting for, for at least uh, four quarters. I think likely closer to six or seven quarters now. Um, this is really going to, I mean, this is going to bankrupt a lot of small and medium sized uh, enterprises. So the concern uh, in terms of looking for incentives or, you know, stabilizers is legitimate. And certainly large-scale manufacturing, which was beginning to show some signs of life, at least uh, that's what the data was suggesting, uh, because of global uh, demand, uh, as it is expected to you know, be impacted, um, there's concerns there. So I think on the big picture macro stuff, the incentives or the, um, the bailouts, if you will, are understandable. But the fact that we've not heard anything about what the government is planning to do vis-a-vis -vis BISP or vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, langar khanas and, and the various other instruments that, you know, make up uh, the ASAS program, so to speak, the umbrella program of social protection instruments. Um, and, and also we're, we've seen, I think, you know, to be fair to the government, there are, there are some areas where there's been some coherence over the last few months. The Kamyab Javan program in, in conception uh, is a coherent effort to consolidate, uh, you know, investments and uh, skills and those sorts of things. Uh, none of these things is going to have a quick turnaround time. And so the, the next quarter, two quarters of pain is almost inevitable, which makes the instrumentalization of BISP and social mm -hmm. protection devices, particularly cash grants, 
uh, all the more important. But what's going to concurrently happen is there's going to be, as there always is, because there's a remarkably Republican strain in the Pakistani discourse about low taxes, particularly income taxes and sales tax, is that uh, there's going to be an argument for lower sur uh, fuel taxes and surcharges mm -hmm. uh, because of the lower oil prices. If the government makes the mistake of, of giving, giving consumers that, that freebie, uh, it's giving up the opportunity to engage in distributive, uh, uh, distributive uh, sort of reallocation. Uh, of course, it's not the ideal instrument uh, to collect revenue through the gasoline tax, but the lower oil prices offer perhaps the only window of in improved revenue collection as we're running up against the deadline uh, for the end of June uh, at this fiscal year, and it's invariable that we're going to miss the original targets. But this is the time where that extra revenue is even more important because the government needs to take from the source where it can and give to the source, uh, give to the to the destination that, that cannot. Um, mm -hmm. The bottom two quintiles of uh, Pakistani uh, consum consumption and income groups are going to feel uh, the kinds of pain that I suspect and fear is going to cause um, visible uh, disturbances, uh, you know, uh, on video, in streets, at, at stores, at hospitals. Um, and if that, you know, ends up being the case, almost the only device that the government will have to restore some degree of stability are cash handouts. Yeah, and I think you raise an interesting point, it's something that I've been talking about it uh, with friends and on social media is that a big risk right now in Pakistan, and the prime minister talked about it to some extent was against hoarders and hoarding of essential items. Um, and I think it's at some point also important to make sure that, that those supply shocks don't take place because not only do they hurt uh, the most vulnerable segments of society, but you know, overall in terms of economic stability, the state bank is not going to cut rates uh, when it uh, it sees inflation going up through supply shocks. So I think that's another important thing to consider. Iram, from your perspective, um, what are you seeing in terms of uh, what's going on in Pakistan and what the government needs to do to respond and have an effective response to this emerging crisis in the country? Uh, thank you, Zair. Thanks for having me on. You know, the one thing, um, and I was in Pakistan for the last uh, few yeah. months, and then I just got back to the United States right now. And so it's interesting to see the contrast between um, what governments are even capable of and what tools they have at their disposal if something like this were to happen. You know, the United States has historically had, you know, an economy in place that's not only there for the time being, but if there was an exogenous shock like this, and there have been, what instruments are available to the United States in order to protect its workers and citizens. And, you know, there's all sorts of debates about that. But this idea that you could have um, sick leave compensation for a lot of workers in the United States right now, which is a policy that they are expanding. They have at least, at least 25 percent of federal workers are being covered by this. And this could expand into private businesses as well. Uh, and there are some private businesses that are already being required to mandate sick leaves beyond the 20-day uh, yearly policy that there is. Um, in Pakistan, you can see that this is something that's just not going to work, right? I mean, we want to incentivize people to stay at home to stop the, 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 the spread of this pandemic. But you have people who, as uh, you and Raheen and others pointed out, are living paycheck to paycheck or even less. They are in constant cycles of debt. So if they don't go to work, they cannot they, they go from work to the marketplace to buy food every day, right? So in my interviews in Pakistan, in my sort of three years of work uh, researching my book, um, this is a cycle which people um, are constantly engaged in. So I think in some ways, um, when I read the SPP, uh, the state bank's policy, uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan's speech, the one thing that really struck me is that there are very specific policies that are being rolled out for businesses, as Mahim pointed out, the 7% cheap financing for small manufacturers, for people dealing with um, the, you know, the healthcare system as well. But where are those policies in place for the poorest of the poor? And there's lots of general talk about how there will be social protection uh, in place, but really we have never had a history of that in any comprehensive way. And you know, I look to my fellow panelists to disagree with me. Um, can people stay home from work if they're sick? And even if they do, what are the social safety nets that take care of them? Are there family members who step in? Uh, are there people who take on work from home? 
what are going to what's going to happen to home based work um, and to daily wages if this if this leads to an economy bottoming out uh, as we are seeing. Um, and the second thing is, if people are going to work and they are getting sick, what is this going to do to the cost of medical um, uh, of medicines for the family and also for the state? Given that many people are dependent on welfare and um, welfare medicine, primary healthcare units um, that may not may simply just not be enough to deal with the scale of this crisis. So I think we need to think very critically about how the structure of this system or how the structure of the economy is built on the idea that labor is informal and unfortunately it is to a large extent disposable and we expect people to go into debt in order to meet their day-to-day -day costs. So this is this is sort of nothing new. What we don't know is what happens if this is on a, a societal scale and for a sustained period of time. If that makes sense, mm -hmm. it's, not just, it's not just you who cannot go out to work because you're sick and that your wife takes on piece rate work. It is that you cannot go and earn a living. Your children cannot go. Your cousin who was helping you pay your bills cannot go. What happens then? And and I think um, it's it's anybody's guess, really, what, what this could do to daily wages and people living not even below the you know poverty. I haven't even spoken about that. I'm talking about sort of yeah. middle class, middle class you know, citizens who depend on going to work every day in order to buy their meals in the evening. No, that's a very important point. I think that segment of society is often ignored in the popular discourse, right? And I'm sure if I agree with you that Republican strain within Pakistani discourse is evident in all of the economic discussions that do occur time to time on the popular media. Mine, coming back to you in terms of, um, you know, you look at the United States or you look at even Europe, uh, India to an extent, but uh, other countries where you're not just looking at a whole of government approach, but a whole of country approach in terms of how to respond to this crisis. I know you mentioned that uh, corporations in Pakistan, business in Pakistan are not over levered, they're cash rich. Uh, do you see a role for these corporations in dealing with this emerging crisis, particularly to help make sure that the pain uh, on vulnerable segments of society, even the middle class is as little as it can possibly be given the precarious situation they're in right now? Yeah, I mean, I certainly do think so. So the on-the-ground um, uh, sort of uh, response that we have seen from almost every business here, and I'm talking about, I would say, more the formalized ones and the informalized ones, is a general concern in terms of uh, worker and uh, worker safety. Uh, health and safety. Um, so what we've seen a lot of people have been pushing for the work from home principle. I think a lot of companies have really given their employees uh, sort of the option that if they would like to stay home, they can. So the compulsion to come into work is not there. Um, there has also been, I think, a general, uh, you know, splitting of the workforce so that uh, there's fewer people in interaction with each other on a daily basis. So the response has been a very much on an individualized company basis. Unfortunately, you know, there is nothing really, I would say, from the government um, that, that comes across as a strong message to all of us here. Uh, everyone's kind of been acting on their own. Um, but what would really help, I mean, I've, I've just kind of seen it today from the government that we're shutting down restaurants, that we're shutting down malls, that we're shutting down all this for the next two weeks. Uh, but it would be exceptionally useful um, for the government to turn around and at least give some basic guidelines on businesses here. Um, I mean, take the example of financial institutions. Now, uh, financial institutions like ourselves or bank or the banking sector, we are unable to be uh, unable to uh, act like a small business and say, OK, we're shutting shop for the next two weeks. Uh, just to protect the safety of our, uh, you know, our workers. And we will obviously be offering paid leave to whoever, uh, you know, over this time period. Um, however, the financial sector uh, is completely unable to make that decision without the state bank actually allowing them to make that decision. Um, and same goes for participants in other financial services areas, because we all take our cues from the central bank on this one. But by not doing so uh, and by, you know, trying to keep things operating as normal under business as usual, um, I think we are certainly going to be perpetuating the spread of this uh, virus because there is a lot of human to human interaction in these uh, in these in any kind of business, really. 
So I mean, think one, a coherent plan from the government, from the federal level, not just from the provincial level, on what steps should we really be taking? Uh, because I do believe the next two, three weeks for Pakistan will be really, really crucial in terms of the spread of this disease. And I can absolutely assure you that the health system is not in any position to um, to mm-hmm. cater to, to this if this really does blow out of proportion and go into the tens of thousands. In terms of, again, uh, businesses being asked to help on the uh, on the health infrastructure side, I really don't think there would be any resistance to that as long as we had an idea of what to do. Um, it is one thing uh, to turn around and say to the banks that please provide cheap financing to hospitals. It's a completely separate thing for us as uh, as individual business units um, to then turn around and say, well, what can we do in, uh, as well? Can we make this part of our CSR programs? Can we launch a separate drive or donation drives within our own systems to be able to contribute to the hospitals? And if so, which are the hospitals that need our help the most? So again, you know, um, this always comes down to the same thing with the, with this government is that the plan always tends to come after the fact. Uh, I do not have any doubt on the Pakistan corporation or the Pakistan individual's generosity when it comes to moments such as this. This nation really does rise up and contribute. Um, what we would really like to know is where exactly should we do this and in what shape or form should we do this that is the most meaningful. And I think it would be great to see the government actually come out with a cohesive plan on this front, because without that plan, we are all kind of just shooting in the dark here. Um, a question I have for Maheen, if I may. Um, so yeah, we, go ahead. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about, you mentioned um, sort of the financing available to manufacturing, and you also mentioned that this is really an opportunity, unfortunately, for a lot of predatory businesses who may not be sincerely committed to actually reviving the economy to just get more of what they have always been demanding. Um, mm. Are there any intelligent ways of sort of, you know, just what's a sniff test for this sort of thing, right? I mean, what are the things which will sincerely matter at this point? So, for example, um, on the one hand, uh, a stimulus for manufacturing might be useful and worthwhile at any given time. But right now, are we really going to see more people go into the workforce if you have lots of people falling sick? On the other hand, there might be certain things which are greater in demand. Um, for example, uh, India has a sort of huge manufacturing base for antibiotics and pharmaceuticals, which are going to be incredibly useful for them uh, right now. Um, is this the sort of thing that we can rapidly raise in the next few months? Or, is, you know, so, so which, which of these are realistic, um, particularly given where the workforce is highly informal and not likely to be absorbed very quickly in the next few months? Okay, so let's separate out long term from short term here. Right. On short term, uh, it's a matter of damage control. Yeah. Business will slow, the, the economic growth will uh, slow, demand will slow. So let's just take that as a given. It's going to slow all over the world. It's going to slow here as well, because right now the impact is not on how to make new business run. It's about how to limit the damage of this virus. And that's it. There's no, there's nothing really beyond that. Um now, the financing that people are offering, you asked about the sniff test, the financing that's being offered by the state bank is for new investment only. It's not for existing investment. So if I have a plant as a textile manufacturer, I can't go and avail 7% on my existing plant. Um, I have to have an idea for a new investment. I have, And my new investment, it can either be brownfield or greenfield. And that new investment is then what will be eligible for that 7%. So it is not something, you will have to put money in the ground in order to avail that financing. That's the basic premise of that uh, of that 7%. So that is a second round though, right? No one's going to think about starting a business in the next or starting an industrial plant in the next two months, right. simply because the next two months are about getting this thing under control. Uh, and, and if that means that we have to pull back on business decisions, yes, then that is exactly what we will do. But that, that does not mean that we cannot use this time to plan. Um, and certainly plan, I, 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 as soon as the news came out on the 7% financing, I certainly had a lot of industrial uh, friends whose, uh, you know, um, uh, sort of eyes kind of lit up on this one. And I tell you why that is. Uh, so when we go back and we talk about the fragile economic recovery and the fact that exports had uh, started to gain some momentum, 
um, the reality is that pretty much every textile mill here and every export-oriented industry here was operating at 100% capacity. And most were looking for ways to either buy out someone else to enhance their capacity or set up new plants. Uh, so that demand cycle was very much there, whether it was bri- being driven locally or the being driven internationally is a separate thing, but that demand cycle, cycle had begun to pick up. Hence, cheap financing for a new industrial unit, I think certainly would get many people quite interested because they are seeing that demand. Now, everyone believes that uh, at some point this this virus will die off simply because we have seen the case of China who have managed to get it under control. It's taken them three months but they've given us the formula on which to work with. I think now it's up to every country to see how, if they can even actually implement that formula because it comes with you know, huge implications on the business and the, and the social front. Um, but that's not to say that once this does die down and it is you know, a wave, I, you know, I do think it's a wave that will come through. We, we have to ride it through, whether we do it through lockdown or we do it through whatever means. Um, once you're beyond that, it's a question of kickstarting demand again. Uh, it's about reopening the schools, reopening the restaurants, reopening the malls, reopening the cinema, get that cycle flowing again. Uh, and that, that I think will be the yeah. tricky part that that's not going to be easy. Uh, because once you've gone in for a full shutdown to restart that economic cycle is not as simple as everybody thinks. Uh, I, I, I think if you take China's example, China is now in my estimation, uh, already in a recession, and it will take a year for China to crawl out of this situation, to get back to manufacturing output the way it was. And I think the rest of the world, including ourselves, we are looking at a very similar scenario. I I will say, though, just just one thing, and I'm really glad you separated the long term from the short term. I think in the long term, we don't want something like this to happen again, which we're caught on the back foot. We just don't have the reserves or the capacity to deal with something for two or three months at a stretch. But in the medium term as well, it's interesting that the incentives being provided to businesses or even the recovery being provided to businesses may or may not benefit their workers. So I don't see businesses being under any obligation to retain workers, um, to retain employees um, across the spectrum. So whether it's in formal or informal industry, are there any protections in place to make sure people don't lose their jobs? Um, Secondly, in the informal economy in particular, you can provide incentives to manufacturing and that's great. And it's, and it's been, arguably it's been done before, but again, it doesn't require them to hire locally. It doesn't require them to retain or to keep people on permanent contracts either. So while I celebrate and I commend um, the government's sort of protection of small manufacturing, because that is a very important part of keeping the economy afloat, the day-to-day impact on workers is is something I'm not seeing. And I wonder if you think that that is something that is being adequately addressed by the by the by the state. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So simple simple answer to your question is that the the private sector is not uh, not incentivized uh, to uh, safeguard invest, uh, worker interest unless it's in their own interest. And that's the reality of private sector everywhere. So uh, if we are still coming out of a two-year recession, um, so the job loss in that recession has already happened. Um, the manufacturing downturn that we saw the last two years has already led to layoffs, has already led to cuts. So... Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that that's been happening for the last two years. This is just sort of an extension of that. Um, there is no private sector on the planet where you can turn around and say, well, uh, this is a force majeure situation. Well, yes, it is a force majeure situation, but companies operate for the for the basis of profit. And uh, unless you're a nationalized industry or a nationalized institution, you will contru- you will continue to operate on the basis of profit. Uh, so, so if if the situation calls for a layoff, you will do that layoff. And let me assure you that layoffs have been ap- happening for the last two and a half years. That's right. Um, and that's and that's just the way it is. And there is there's only so much in terms of safety net that a corporation can offer its employees. Yes, one month, two months, three months, six months, even. I think those are safety nets that corporations have offered in the past as well. But as an indefinite 
you can never say uh, or you can never force a uh, you know a corporation to say that okay for the next one year you must ensure salary so matara when i talked about sick leave when i talked about sick leave we are specifically in the united states talking about sick leave for small and medium business firms right and we're not saying this is indefinite we're just saying for the time being if we are asking people to stay at home and we're not expecting or nobody expects the private sector to pay for it itself this has to be a government mandated um principle that is set to reduce the spread of the virus right this isn't sort of as out of the goodness of our hearts if the i am interacting with people who are forced to work every day and forced to commute every day um uh, that is uh, that is a problem as much a problem for me as it is for them so i i i think they uh, let's don't i i do not suggest for a second that it is the private sector that's going to come up with these um policies themselves it will have to be the you know uh, you know, you'll have to be the government of pakistan looking into yeah. uh yeah. this possibility right Yeah. yeah, I yeah. think that's a that's a very valid point, and that's one of the things I was thinking about was that you look at what legislatures around the world are doing. They're passing fiscal stimulus, not not income that were laughable six months ago in the United States are now on the agenda at, on the Hill right now, being debated with the Treasury Secretary. Much of my question to you was: Are is there if any conversation around a fiscal stimulus focusing on expanding the SAS umbrella? or making sure that these vulnerable groups have cash on the table that keeps them afloat that doesn't force them to go to work is there anything like this that is being debated at the provincial or even at the federal government level because essentially that is how you prevent the virus from spreading right people need to stay at home but they won't stay at home barring a curfew if they feel that they need that 100 rupee income to make sure that they have two loaves of bread for their kids on the table the next day yeah but i mean my knowledge of you know what's being discussed is limited by you know the fact that i depend on open source and a few conversations here and there there's definitely i know for a fact that the finance ministry is working you know through the night the last few nights trying to figure out um how they're going to respond to it the likelihood of that response being particularly creative or uh, thorough uh in terms of coherence uh, is I I fear that that likelihood is is limited to begin with and it decreases every day the crisis grows because every day the crisis grows the sense of panic increases uh and there's not just the the coronavirus that's uh, driving um people's worries in Islamabad there's at least three or four other uh vertical uh, you know areas of pressure including political pressure and we've seen some strange decisions with respect to the public discourse this is uh this is a free space unlike many others uh but mishikil rahman's arrest at this time the transfer of not one uh, federal secretary for health but two uh mm-hmm. at least one of whom was transferred for political reasons uh is telling uh there there's a lot going on in islamabad that has nothing to do with uh, with covid-19 unfortunately um I think on coherence you know so in my column today I I asked for five things to happen and they're interrelated I've already mentioned and pitched the first one in my in my first response which is no no lower lowering of the price of gasoline and whatever you know money is being saved because of the lower cost of procuring gasoline or or crude oil or whatever form of oil we bring in uh that should that should pad up uh, our revenue numbers the reason you need to do that is is multifarious but it addresses at least in my mind some of what it was saying and i'm going to follow this up with a question from mahin myself uh because the second thing i asked for is a doubling of the bisp payments immediately so everybody that's already getting money you got to double their payments right away uh the third thing you got to do is revise monetary policy with the intent of increasing small and medium sized uh businesses access to credit so it's exactly what we've been talking about and to some extent i think mahin is right i think 75 basis points is a tad lower than i would have liked but it isn't you know the discussions i was seeing on some whatsapp groups was 300 basis points and yeah, i was yeah 300 like, was the take a running before the no, this is not like why what's like the logic for this yeah. Yeah. no no it wasn't based on any numbers and whatever else we might think of dr bakar um you know these decisions are going to be rigorous they're going to be based on considerations to do both with our revenue numbers our monetary policy our uh continuing continuing obsession with the current account deficit 
with the interest rate and of course uh, with the IMF's demands, even though I know there's going to be some allowances and some extra space that the IMF is going to afford this country. The fourth thing that I'd asked for was a no layoffs policy for all businesses going to, you know, the point Adam was talking about and how we pay for that is, of course, we pay for that through increased entitlements. And, you know, BISP is only one instrument. Just remember, and I think this is something our listeners should really consider, BISP as a social protection device or instrument was conceived in the throes of the 2008 and 2009 financial crisis. Global financial crises are opportunities for people like us to expand the conversation about public welfare. And that's so. So my last point is 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 one that's related to that because the final thing that I suggested was that the worst hit sectors, uh, I think, particularly travel and tourism, and particularly because this government is really interested in those two areas, uh, rightly so. Uh, I think they're viable areas of potential future growth, substantial future growth. But they're going to be demolished. Whatever little building momentum. I mean, I know of at least four new businesses for religious tourism that had started up. In the last year, they're going to the three of them are going to be wiped out within the next quarter, uh, and and the other one might survive because of family money. So you know what's the government going to do there? So if there's targeted, uh, targeted subsidization of some of these sectors, I think a lot of people would be comfortable with that. What's more difficult is across the board easing of uh, fiscal uh, responsibilities on on individuals and on businesses that actually only end up serving the rich. Final point, the the revenue part of this equation is extremely important. And one of the things that I was looking forward to was that the country was going to float at least one, if not more, either Sukuk or, or Bond. That conversation, and this is this is really for Mahin, but also for, for, for the two of you, for Ozad and for uh, Idam, is it correct to assume that there's no chance in hell that there's going to be a bond float in the next quarter or two quarters just because of the state of global markets? And if that's the case, the little bit of extra breathing space on the current account because of the denomination of the bond and on the fiscal because it, you know, it actually gives you cash in hand, what will that do to decision making in terms of either printing money or you know, where's the, that extra money going to come from? Because I don't think the padding of revenues from the price of uh, gas is going to be quite enough to deal with the extra entitlements and subsidies uh, that the government is going to need to offer. Notwithstanding in all of this is the extra cost of both the enforcement of social isolation. So if there's curfew, uh, the army is going to need more money. Uh, and, and I know that opens a whole other can of worms, especially for progressive friends. But, 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 but really, it costs money to enforce yeah. things, right? And then the even more important is the cost of public health service delivery. Uh, okay, we're going to buy that. extra vet. Yeah. Okay. So to that, right, sorry, go on. Just also yeah. the, the cost of food as well over the next few months. We'll have a big, I mean, hopefully if, if all goes well, we'll have an agricultural cycle coming in in the summer. Um, what's yeah. going to happen with that? Are we going to use that to shore up Forex? Is it going to be consumed domestically? There are a lot of things that we really need to look to in terms of uh, and then the, the the sort of the chronic problem, the chronic problem we have affording in the country, which again is a costly costly thing to enforce, is to get people to not hoard uh, on a small scale, but also to not sort of inflate the price artificially. So, Mahin, let's go to you because that was the question I was going to ask Musharraf was how are you going to pay for all these entitlements and particularly focusing on the bond flotation. Do you see okay. the possibility of Pakistan being able to tap into the bond market? Okay, so let's talk about a lot of points you guys have raised and all of them come back to one thing, which is really funding. Um, now, the good news on the current account is that it's not in a very precarious situation. Your imports have really uh, dropped by 70% since last year. So we're just importing the essentials plus oil. The drop in international oil prices to below $30 is going to save you almost 3 to $4 billion on your import bill additionally. Yeah. So even if your exports drop, drop um, you know, from the current by, you know, current about $20, $21 billion to approximately, even if you see an attrition in exports by, say, about $4, 5000000000 billion over the course of a year, yeah, that's significant, but it will most likely be countered by the uh, drop in imports anyway, because your oil, I don't see it at least going up over the next six to eight months 
at all beyond the 30 35 mark so that's your blessing in disguise that uh weak international oil prices are going to force weak commodity prices which are going to on the whole uh bring your uh, external account into some degree of stability uh and carry that forward for the rest of the year so you you're fairly comfortable on that front for the moment now where are you going to get funding so this is um a global crisis you have had uh, a global response on this and you need a global response on this this is not something any one country can possibly handle on their own the imf has recently committed about a trillion dollars to uh, managing this crisis for countries that need it i would expect after that imf announcement that you would have the adb and the world bank follow suit as other multilateral donors that go along with the imf what you should be doing as a government right now today uh the first step should be to appeal to these agencies one yes you can ask for certainly relaxations on the imf program which you will get but at the same time we should be asking for uh, a deeper share of the pie when it comes to funding on this front if there's a trillion dollars available to manage this then there is no reason that pakistan should not be entitled to a fair amount of it given the scale of the country's population and given the economic situation that we were in in any case before uh, the crisis that is one area we should absolutely be addressing i think the other thing that we can certainly do there has been a lot of programs committed by the world bank and the adb um there's been a lot of uh, interaction with the world bank and adb over the last uh, i would say 6 months or so on various different development plans some of that money should be routed um to to this sort of social uh, welfare um the third thing i think we can do and that's more on a state bank policy level as well is accelerate um the uh, digital economy plans which they had and i tell you why that is uh because there's one thing that every pakistani or broadly every pakistani has access to and that's a cell phone and that's uh, you know and chances are quite high that that cell phone will also be a smartphone so in terms of the accelerating the impact of the digital economy whether it is in terms of banking transactions or payment platforms or whether it is in the form of uh, encouraging uh, work from home via you know remote meetings and video links and video conferences so far i don't think these are practiced very aggressively over here and even on our payment side we have seen uh, a lot of transaction happen with the low income group in fact and that's something that should be accelerated uh both in terms of allowing uh in terms of a disbursement of handouts because remember we are in a place uh, we are in a situation where social distancing is important so the more we can distribute through our payments platforms and our digital platforms uh whether it is via bisp or whether it is via any kind of funding arrangement we should be able to use things like easy pesa or mobile wallets to actually distribute this so i think that acceleration on the state bank side um would certainly help uh in one uh, reducing the spread of the disease simply because you would have less human interaction in the financial system in terms of payments so you know i think these three or four things are something that you can do pretty easily right now uh especially given that you know given that international agencies right now are looking for that how to fix the cry for help that is coming out of everywhere um so where the funding is certainly going to come from look we have endemic issues with relation to taxation and exports we can't possibly be looking to increase taxation and exports at a time of crisis such as this so hence yes the imf must loosen restrictions fatf must loosen their restrictions in terms of our money laundering uh, requirements and you know these continuous threats uh, which are frankly speaking political in nature to put us on the gray list and we must aggressively be seeking those concessions from these um agencies and at the same time asking for money to tide over this time that is the direction in which policy makers should be thinking rather than wondering on how to mobilize internal resource you certainly can but it will take you a lot more time and it will take money away from projects that are as crucial um and divert them to this and then you are left with you know just working uh, from one crisis to another but let's use the situation we are in use it to our advantage ask these guys to back off us on these very harsh conditionalities which they've imposed uh and work towards something that will benefit us in the form of um uh you know form of uh, uh the donors donations that they are giving to other countries we should absolutely get our share of that and if we can find a way to distribute those payments or donations in an electronic form 
I think that we will certainly help our own cause in uh, stopping the spread of this disease. I think that's a very valid point. I think increased accelerated digitization of the economy in Pakistan, this is an opportunity and uh, particularly in this crisis, it's important for people's health. So I'm glad that you raised that. I know we're coming up on the hour mark, so uh, I'll just go around the panel here, starting with Hiram here. Uh, any parting thoughts in terms of what Pakistan should be looking to do to deal with the economic fallout of this crisis? Yeah, and I think that before, I'm really grateful. Before, Iram, just, yeah. Yeah. sorry, I had a question for Iram as well, if that's okay, Uzair, uh, yeah. with your permission. No, go for it. Iram, talk to us a little bit and maybe walk us through your what you're predicting or what you're seeing in terms of the uh, power situation in the country. Um, you know, every summer there's a concern about shortages. Uh, there's already a massive uh, circular debt debate that was already ongoing. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any instrument at the federal level to resolve the disagreement between NEPRA and, and the ministry. Uh, the government, as usual, waits for things to blow over from the newspapers, but those crises continue to grow. Um, what is your thinking on how that might be affected by the impact of COVID-19? Well, Musharraf, if anything, the, de the decrease in oil prices is going to allow us to kick that can down the road even further. I think that given that our, our circular debt, as Nahid pointed out, as our, our current account deficit does stabilize, it's going to be one more, one more reason that the government doesn't have to deal with that full-on right now. If anything, it's going to be extremely unpopular to try and raise tariff rates at this time. So private, uh, private sector firms like K-Electric that have been gunning for that for a long time are likely to not get uh, what they want. Um, in terms of raising tax revenues from uh, utility bills, I think that's going to continue because that's a major basis for how we do uh, uh, raise taxes in this country. Um, I think what Maheen said, it's particularly important now going to the, uh, to the sort of, you know, my kind of uh, overall thoughts on this. It's really telling that at a time like this, we too, as Pakistan, are looking to push our advantage as to how much we can get from the people who have historically supported us in terms of our um, safety nets in terms of our financial safety nets, in terms of our business safety nets. We are going to the IMF likely for another bailout, whatever that looks like in the next few months. I think that in the United States, it is workers and, um, whole, you know, sort of students and other vulnerable groups that have also started seeing that at a time of crisis where the rich are only as safe as the poor are, there is an ability to push that envelope on what we can expect the government to do for us. So while Pakistan is having this global conversation about what should be done with FATF, about what is expected of us in this time, I think workers and students and other vulnerable groups in Pakistan are going to start demanding things like formalized work. They're going to start demanding things like medical relief for medical expenses. Um, and they're going to start saying, as we've all been going around, you know, circling the wagons on this. If you want us to stay at home, you need to pay us to do it. It's not going to happen otherwise. You, we, as, as Pakistanis of a certain class, are only as safe as the domestic help who come in to um, work for us every day, um, the people who we depend on in terms of support staff. Um, I think this is an important opportunity to have some really serious conversations about how, who, is, who takes the fall for something like this. And it has historically been um, the poorest of the poor. Um, it has historically been low-income countries. And I think if low-income countries start demanding um, better, better deals from the IMF, from the World Bank, from the ADP, there are people within those low-income countries who also have a right to organize and to speak up at a time like this. Um, so I think that's extremely important. And, and as, far as, the, as, as far as the energy issue is concerned, uh, Musharraf, I would be very surprised if there's serious movement on this in the next few months. Um, this is really going to be, uh, depending on how long the virus stays in Pakistan, I think it's going to be occupying most of um, federal conversations for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I would underline what Iram said. I don't see any likelihood of things moving forward on the energy sector side. Musharraf, from your perspective, any parting thoughts in terms of what should be done in Pakistan right now to deal with this emerging crisis that is currently, I know you have your five points, but anything else that you want to uh, leave us with in terms of the thought that Pakistan can do uh, to deal with this crisis? 
I mean, I think that one of the and again we've alluded to it in in various uh, in various ways, but these kinds of crises offer uh, opportunity to uh, to wipe the slate clean. Uh, I think our public health system, which is for far too long uh, overly obsessed with tertiary, and again, I don't mean this in an insensitive way. Anybody that has a tertiary crisis, they know the value of of the importance of you know uh, the the tertiary care projects that do exist in the country, whether it's Shokat Khanam or it's AFIC or it's any of the big ones. But tertiary care, uh, you know, there's there's limited funding in in the system, and the direction of disease uh, globally and especially in a country like Pakistan, because of demography and technology and consumption habits, the direction of disease is moving further and further away from tertiary uh, care. Uh, problems, uh, problems that require tertiary care to problems that require preventative and primary uh, care. The the issue is that the political payoff from investing in primary is uh, substantially more limited because you don't need 200 beds. You actually need five beds, 10 beds, and you need multiples of those in more places. There's a way politically valuable for the politicians and bureaucrats uh, and, and others in our system that are that are supporting them, uh, but that they're also valuable in terms of our overall public health care system. So I think there needs to be a much more robust debate around uh, the nature and the direction of public health care in this country. And this once again offers us an opportunity like 0809 to create a substantial dent in the uh, 100 percent of uh, budget expenditures. What percentage directly goes to the poorest of the poor in this country? We we made a small uh, you know kink in the armor in 08, 09 through BISP, and by we I mean people who who consider it uh, collective responsibility that those people are taken care of. I think we have another opportunity, and I think this is there's broad bipartisan support for this, uh, notwithstanding the kind of republicanization of our discourse. Most people will be more than happy at a time like this to. Uh, to approve and, and sign off on substantially greater entitlements for those that need them the most. Women, disabled people, old people, and people whose skill set has not been invested in in the way that wealthy people's skill sets have been invested in. Thank you for that. Maheen, any parting thoughts from your perspective? Um, I think, um, uh, you know, events like this, uh, they, they, they just highlight the weaknesses that are already present um, within the system. Uh, I think it is incumbent on the policymakers, whether they sit in the state bank or they sit in the federal government or they even sit in the provincial government, to learn from the mistakes from the last financial crisis, which was 2008-2009. Uh, not repeat those same mistakes because fundamentally social nets uh, were non-existent as well back then in 2008-2009 um, and try and use this um, you know this uh, crisis uh, to create policy measures that will you know enable us to get to things like this in the future uh, we have to recognize that this is um, it's a global event that is unprecedented uh, and it will very likely change the way the world does business, let alone how Pakistan does business. Um, but I, I think we should uh, absolutely learn from what has been happening in other countries with regard to this and, the, and understand the value of easing regulatory pressure at this point in time on businesses. Um, and at the same time, while we want to protect SMEs and we want to protect uh, workers, uh, we need to you know, find the the means or the mechanisms by which uh, not just SMEs thrive, but also entrepreneurs thrive. Because remember, this is sort of, if you like, a turning point in our cycle in many ways. And perhaps this, uh, you know, corona spread becomes that opportunity to shift policy very heavily in favor of job creation and in favor of entrepreneurship and in favor of new business. Uh, simply by allowing that regulatory ease to come in. It is very, very hard in Pakistan to do business as an entrepreneur or as a small business. You know, this is our opportunity to relax those controls as policymakers, to relax the uh, regulation around taxation uh, and really see if we can carry that forward. Um, 
because I think that's the only thing that will get Pakistan beyond the next decade uh, is really the ability to be able to set up those new businesses and to create those jobs. This we will get through in some shape or form or the other. But in the future, um, the real worry is how do you sustain that growth? And that's always been our problem. Um, so let's use this as an opportunity to relax those controls and try and allow once we are through the initial panic cycle of this to allow growth to come through in a much more meaningful way. No, I think that's a very valid point. And I think from uh, the conversation with the three of you, it's pretty clear that this is a crisis, but the crisis offers an opportunity to do things that have not been done before and are badly needed, uh, whether it comes to protecting vulnerable segments, whether it comes to easing regulations for businesses in terms of allowing the entrepreneurial spirit to grow in Pakistan, uh, and whether it comes to dealing with structural issues in the economy, whether it's the structural uh, fiscal, uh, sorry, the circular debt, or it's related to exports and the lack of export growth that Pakistan has seen. So again, I thank you all for joining on such last minute notice for this conversation on Pakistanomy. And uh, again, valuable insights, valuable discussion, and uh, have a good rest of the night for those of you in Pakistan, and have a good rest of the day for those of us in DC. Thank you, Zip. Thank you. All right, thank you.